Hey, Parker, it was so great to spend time with you and your wife, Sharon Palmer, this weekend, you know, without masks and hugs all around. It was like, it was wonderful. It was beautiful to see you too, Carrie. Thanks so much for coming to visit. And it was wonderful to have a chance to talk about today's podcast with Sharon Salzberg, founder of the Insight Meditation Center. So let's go to the podcast. I'm Carrie Newcomer. And I'm Parker Palmer. Welcome to The Growing Edge. To the words and habit between us And to us and how we live between the words Sharon Salzberg, it's so good to have you with us, my friend. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. I want to introduce you to the maybe two people in our audience who may not know a lot about who you are. (laughs) Um, Everybody else does. Uh, Sharon, with whom I've had the privilege of working in recent years, has had and still very much has a remarkable career. It's taken her to many places around the world and made her beloved to many, many people. It's a career that has had a strong through line which began in 1970 when, as a college student, she traveled to India and became immersed in Buddhism. After intensive study with several Buddhist teachers, she returned to the U.S. in 1973, and one year later, in 1974, she co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, a beautiful retreat center. At the time, She may have had some people in her orbit who thought that this youthful enthusiasm of hers would not last, but they would have been very, very wrong. This year, the Insight Meditation Society celebrated its 45th anniversary, and over those 45 years, thousands and thousands of people have benefited from their programs and retreats. Multiply those numbers many times over and you have the millions who have been nurtured by her well-known books, most recently, Real Change. We'll link to all of them on the Growing Edge website. There's one more thing. I happen to know that Sharon was actually at Woodstock, and she remembers everything that happened there. So I hope that we can do another podcast with her focusing on that topic only. But for the moment, (laughs) Carrie, over to you. Oh, so Sharon, I've also just loved reading your newest book. Just just recently, I just finished it, and I've so enjoyed it. And we'll talk more about that particular book, I think, as the podcast goes on. But first, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about about your history, Mm -hmm. how, how you got here. I mean, Parker mentioned just a bit ago about your time in India and um, the kind of expansion of, of these ideas that you've been so much a part of in, in the West. So maybe you could give us just a little a story or some, some thoughts about what's called your heart all these years mm. uh, to the work you do. Uh, sure. Well, you know, like many people, I had a childhood that was very fractured and um, traumatic. And like for many people, mine was a family system where this was never, ever spoken about. I wrote a book a long time ago called Faith, which is really like my faith journey. And uh, I realized in in the writing of the book that uh, 
from my childhood, my earliest childhood, till the time I left for college, which was at the age of 16, I'd lived in five different family configurations, and each of which had changed uh, because of some kind of loss or trauma. You know, my uh, parents split up when I was four. My mother died when I was nine. I went to live with my grandparents, and it kind of went on from there. And so uh, by the time I was in college, I think if I had to describe myself in one word, it would be fragmented. And uh, just through the greatest good fortune, and honestly, looking back, it feels like it was happenstance. Um, There was a philosophy requirement at the school. I took a look at the schedule. I saw this Asian philosophy class, and I thought, that looks convenient. That fits my schedule nicely. It's on Tuesday. Uh, Let me do that one. And the course completely changed my life in two uh, really profound ways. One was in talking about the Buddhist kind of perspective on life, they emphasized a lot what the Buddha emphasized a lot, which is that life contains suffering, that this is a natural and inevitable part of life that's not meant to be depressing or grim as a message. And it wasn't for me. Like for me, it felt like maybe the first time in my life I got a message like, you belong you're not so weird, you know, you're not so different. Um, This happens to some degree or another, you know, different degrees for everyone. You're a part of things. And that was huge for me. And then I heard in the context of the class, there were these tools, these methods called meditation, that if you practice them, you could be a lot happier in a, a deeper way. And I was going to college in Buffalo, New York, looked around Buffalo, this is 1970, did not see it anywhere. And the university had an independent study project, and I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. So Mm. I was 18 at that point. I'd never even been to California before, having grown up in New York City and gone to school in Buffalo. Um, And I went off to India. Wow. And in India, it sounds like, you know, what drew you to India to that in, to create that independent study, which I'm so excited to hear about because those kinds of educational opportunities sometimes have been, you know, lost or marginalized in in terms of mm-hmm. our um, our educational system, and uh, it allowed you to explore something that resonated with you deeply enough that it, it really changed the course of your life. I have to believe that. Um, a lot of people resonated uh, while listening to this this podcast with your line, you belong, that, that mm-hmm. sudden message, you belong, you're not so different. Um, I'm just wondering, in terms of the work that began for you in India, and then remarkably a few years later was organized and institutionalized in the Insight Meditation Society, which as I recall, uh, you co-founded with Jack Cornfield and one other person? And Joseph Goldstein. And Joseph Goldstein. And in terms of that ongoing work, which we want to talk about in more detail, is the, is the you belong message the core message or a core message in that work as you still see it all these years later? I think it's very much a core part of that message. And and also the uh, um, the existence of tools, you know, like I didn't go to India to become a Buddhist and I still 
I'm not that interested, you know, in an identification or certainly not interested in rejecting anything else. I wanted to know those methods. And um, I think that too is very freeing, you know, because you don't have to join anything. You don't have to declare allegiance to anything, but it's utilizing the power of your own heart and mind and, and being able to be happier, which in turn is something that allows us to really care about others. You know, I know happiness doesn't, as a word, doesn't necessarily have a great reputation. And um, in fact, I was interviewed um, by a journalist who, whose article, the premise of the article was how nobody likes the word happiness anymore. We just like the word joy. And I said, I'm very sorry to hear that since I have like five books with the word happiness in the title <laughs> or subtitle. That's really a shame, you know, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I think that if we understand happiness as kind of a sense of inner resource, not feeling so depleted and so on, it's the wherewithal to really care about others. And so uh, I think that is the message. You can do this, that you have a capacity, whoever you are, to kind of grow in that sense of inner sufficiency or even inner abundance, and that helps us serve others. Yeah, the the tools are very real, and and uh, uh, frankly, they, they've been. It's been kind of startling to me over the years to learn that there really are tools that will enhance happiness, and as you say, service to others. I, I actually think Sharon, you're you're one of the people who's making happiness cool again, and I think that's very <laughs> that's very cool. So please please keep please keep at it. Um, what I'm <laughs> what I'm aware of uh, is that because every time I talk to you uh, and I ask what's up today, you say, "Well, this afternoon I'm working with the New York City Police Department in a particular precinct, or Democrats in Wisconsin, or social change folks around the world, or parents from Sandy Hook." These are real life examples that. I've heard about just in the last couple of years. Um, I'm, I think the answer to the question is pretty obvious, uh, having to do with how do you understand the, the uh, spread, the attraction to mindfulness and mindfulness practices among such diverse audiences? We, we know that they're they're all struggling and they're and they're all suffering, but I'm old enough to remember a time when New York City police wouldn't sit and meditate or even be very <laughs> quiet for uh, more than a moment to get orders from their captain. Um, how, how do you how do you see that in your own journey here? Well, I found it kind of startling myself. You know, <laughs> when I came back from India, I came back as a teacher because one of my own teachers. Uh, this woman named Deepa Ma had told me to teach, and I thought I was coming back to the States for a brief visit before I went back to India for the entire rest of my life. And And I went to see her just to say goodbye, and she said, well, when you go back, you'll be teaching. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And then she said two things that were really amazing. You know, she said, um, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And it was the first time I think I ever looked back at my earlier life thinking, oh, this gave me something of value. Um, 
And then she said to me, you can do anything you want to do, which you're thinking you can't do it. That's going to stop you. And I, I left her room. She lived up in the fourth floor of this building. I walked down the stairs thinking, no, I won't. And then, of course, it turned out that, yes, I did. And, um, you know, so in those days at a party or some social situation, if I was introduced as a meditation teacher, people would often kind of sidle away a little bit like, ooh, that is sort of weird. Um, or occasionally somebody would say to me, did you meet the Beatles over there? And I'd say, no. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sadly, you know, they went when I was in high school. Um, but these days it's, well, not, not that we're currently at parties or social situations, but when we were, uh, it was very different, you know, and remarkably so. I think some of it is the science of the research for people who are reassured by that. Some of it is really an increased understanding that this is not about belief. It's not about joining something, and um, and it's not about rejecting anything else. Uh, but I look at it, and I think, how did this happen? You know, like, and people sometimes tease me. They say, you were meditating before it was cool. <laughs> I guess I was. And you were making people happy after it became uncool. That's right. <laughs> That's good. That has to be a really interesting phenomena for, you know, I, I'm I'm really I'm really touched by that whole story of, about your teacher saying you you will be teaching and you saying no I won't <laughs> no yeah and and this idea of you know but Sharon you have this deep understanding into the nature of suffering that you have something to give from what you have experienced and what you grew up in and you know what a what a, a astounding thing for your teacher to to notice and also to affirm i think a lot of times this you know in our culture we avoid anything that says suffering <laughs> has to come anywhere nearby let's run as fast as we can from that but you know your conversations your books your 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 teaching is you know it it makes that less scary it's like yeah that's the human condition and we don't have to run from that we can actually learn from that and um and that we have something valuable to give when we mine what that what that experience has has helped us learn that we might not have learned another way. Yeah, I'd like to underscore that. I was very touched and impressed by that too, because again, there are people listening to this podcast who are engaging their own suffering on many levels. And in our society, in our world right now, so much suffering is being turned into anger, rage, mm -hmm. violence. And I think part of the message of your story is that you can Offer up your suffering in creative, life-giving ways to other people who are suffering also um, and become a positive force for change in your personal life or in your community life, in your, in your political life. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans right now need to be thinking very seriously about rather than channeling rage as some sort of bogus therapy for the ways in which they they suffer. Does that resonate with what Carrie said and what I just said resonate with your experience with these diverse groups? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, that acknowledgement of suffering uh, is how we find ourselves in one another. 
you know, like it's easy to meet somebody and sort of maybe be impressed or even overwhelmed by their position. And and then you hear their story and you think, oh, right, yeah. here's another one. Here's another human being. Or to quote you, Parker, welcome to the human race. You know, this is this is how it is. And and there can be so much tenderness and, and so much just care. We may not agree or uh, find that we can, you know, forge a life together working for the same things. But um, you really, uh, really learn. I learned a lot just from listening to people and, and meeting them on that level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this whole idea of, of um, meeting, you know, meeting uh, and recognizing one another in where we're very human, um, you know, in our suffering, uh, in our our capacity for connection and compassion, in our grief, um, in our anger or rage, um, righteous justice, you know that you know that we can recognize one another um, in those those places of deep you know, humanity. And um, in your most recent book, you, you you kind of pull out some of those ideas, like anger. I was really moved by the conversation about anger that, that, that you know, that <laughs> I think sometimes in spiritual community, if you get angry, you're not enlightened, you know? And you really spoke very eloquently that, no, you're human, and so you get angry. And and injustice happens, and uh, it's a it's an appropriate response. And at the same time, how do you work with that anger in a way that you know helps the the, the motion forward, but doesn't narrow your perspective? You know, problem solving is hard when you're right in the middle of rage. And so, it was a really interesting part of the book that, yeah, anger is human, and we feel that. Um, how do we work with that? Well, you know, a podcast is not a visual medium anyway, but I was, uh, and I don't have the, the correct cup in, in my room right now, but uh, my friends have taken to sending me mugs and cups that have emblazoned upon them sayings I often use. And apparently mm-hmm. one of them is, um, we feel what we feel. Yeah. And we just feel what we feel. We need absolutely to forgive ourselves for whatever we're feeling. And honor the dignity of every feeling. And yet, if we are not just feeling anger, if we're consumed by it, if we're overwhelmed by it, um, it has certain consequences. It has a certain Mm -hmm. nature. And one of those is exactly what you were describing. It's, uh, we get lost, we get confused. It's like, if you think about the last time you were really, really angry at yourself, and like right now, just bring it up, however long it goes from, it's not also a time where you think, you know what? I did five great things that same morning <laughs> that I said that stupid thing. It's like they are gone. The only thing left is that stupid comment and and we're overwhelmed. And and that's not a place from which, as you said, we can be creative, we can see options, we can decide on a course of action that may be more effective. Um, when I was writing the book, I had the thought, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to use that Gandhi quote where he said something like being lost in anger. And again, I want to distinguish that from feeling anger. Being lost in anger is like um, drinking a cup of poison, thinking it's going to kill the other guy. 
And then when I looked it up, because I wanted to use it in the book, I never once saw it attributed to Gandhi. I saw it attributed to the Buddha and Oprah Winfrey and the big book of AA and Carrie Fisher and Nelson Mandela. Um, I have no idea who said it, <laughs> but somebody said it, uh, apparently, and or it's just collective wisdom. And and it's totally right. You know, we're, we suffer so much sometimes uh, from being lost in, in that kind of anger when it's hard. It's not easy, but... It's possible to channel it instead. You know, we did a podcast uh, recently, you and I, Sharon, as part of the uh, Wellbeing Project, this very interesting international community of social change folk who are really nourished by the kind of work you do with them, um, in which one of our guests talked about the importance of attention and how to focus your attention and what to give attention to, and what you, what you just said about forgetting the five good things you did, said that morning and focusing on this one dumb comment you made um, leads me to ask the, the question, how do you focus your attention when that kind of thing happens to so many of us so often? I mean, it, it happened to me just this week. I've been chewing on an inadequate response I made in the midst of a wonderful, wonderful hour and a half conversation, and I've forgotten the rest. You know, I uh, like like it, uh, my tongue goes to the sore tooth in my mouth, not the ones that are healthy. So, when you work with groups, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think I've gotten in the habit, uh, in part from which I think you both can relate to, from being a a person who puts creative endeavor out into the world, I've gotten into the habit of reminding myself, look at the big picture or, um, gee, you've spent three hours going over that stupid thing you said. What else happened? <laughs> you know, or uh, it's like a flexibility yeah. of attention, even a lightheartedness, you know, that um, I think uh, <laughs> my very first book was called Loving Kindness and it came out like, I don't know, 26 years ago, something like that. And um, the first review, it was the first review I got in my life, you know, of the book, um, was a very positive review, but the author, wherever that was of the review, uh, made some comment about how certain passages enlivened another uh, an otherwise more lackluster section, something like that. The word lackluster was in there. Oh. So of course, what's the only word I remember is lackluster, <laughs> you know? And I mean, it was mm -hmm. so devastating. It was like, and people would say to me, the rest of it's really good. And I'd say, but they called me lackluster. And, and it <laughs> happened to be the same year. I think Bob Dole was running for president and People, somebody said to me, you know who else gets called lackluster? Bob Dole. You know? And I thought, great, just the role model I was like seeking. And, um, you know, and, and so by now I'm just so aware that's by force of habit where my attention will tend to go. And I need to, it's not force, um, it's intentionality. I need to have the intention in mind to even say to myself, what else did it say? You know, or... Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, in case you haven't noticed, uh, loving kindness, a quarter century old now, is still wildly popular with many, many people doing very well in the marketplace, 
which is not always a good measure of whether something's lackluster or not, but it means <laughs> it's meaningful to people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have, I have a question. I think that sometimes comes up in terms of conversation about meditation and contemplative work. Um, that you, you talk quite a bit about how the inner work supports the out, our outer grounding and actions in the world that um, you, ha- you have to do the inner work. There's a practice um, that helps with your own grounding, your own awareness, being able to pay attention uh, and where you place your attention. And I, you know, I've heard sometimes a comment that isn't meditation somewhat se- selfish? It's mm-hmm. all about going inside. And, you know, as a contemplative meditation practitioner myself, you know, I always kind of do the, you know, when the dog like clicks his head to the side and goes, "R," you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, so I, I would imagine that's something that has been asked before, but, you know, how do you negotiate that, this idea that inner work supports the outer work, that they're both, it's mm-hmm. both and. Well, I think this is very connected to the conversation we were having on happiness, that happiness itself seems selfish or uh, being conflict avoidant or being happy-go-lucky mm-hmm. and just dealing in superficialities. And um, I think those conversations are very connected. And I think the um, important point for me, as well as, you know, for people I speak to, is um, is really having a consciousness of the importance of caring and the importance of balance. Uh, because... I think, and this goes back to something Parker was referring to in terms of the people I tend to work with these days. Um, you know, in the beginning of my teaching, everything, and often still is, just open. Whoever showed up, showed up. And it was over time that I, I began working a lot more specifically with people we call caregivers. Who I always think there needs to be a, a better word, but, um, you know, people who in their family life or in their professional life we're really taking care of other people, or even just those who in friendships and relationships would tend to be the caregiver. So people who would tend to give much more than they received. And then that blossomed into, like I, I said to myself one day, who does that remind me of? And I thought, oh, activists, you know, people yes. who are really on the front lines of suffering, yeah. trying to make for a better world, trying to change conditions. And uh, they cared plenty, but they were often burning out. And and this goes back to something I had studied, which was kind of the role of balance. You know, maybe we have a lot of compassion for others and not so much for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we have tremendous compassion for others and a really bad sense of boundaries. You know, like, I have to do everything by Tuesday because it's all up to me. Or, um, or maybe we have these wildly perfectionistic standards, you know, where nothing is ever good enough. And, and we also lack perspective. I mean, it's a huge range. It's a huge expanse of perspective, I find, that's needed in activism of some kind, because it may not be today. It may not be next week. You know, you've got to really believe you're planting seeds and that uh, that is essential work, even if you don't see the immediate flowering. And um you know, and, and it all came back for me to things I'd learned in meditation. And uh, I I see it both ways. Like I, 
I really want to help offer these tools to caregivers, to activists who are interested in seeing if, if they help sustain the work and create resilience. And I also have um, so many people uh, that I know who've practiced meditation or some uh, contemplative tools, some kind of spirituality, and they they make a real shift. You know, like the classic story would be somebody coming to me and saying, um, I was walking down the street and somebody came up to me and asked me for a dollar and I gave them a dollar uh, because that's my habit, that's my practice, but it's the first time I ever looked that person in the eye and realized that they were a human being. Oh. And then uh, they also don't necessarily know what to do with that besides giving the person the dollar. There isn't necessarily the kind of education, like let's look at systems. Let's ask some questions. Did you ever think like, why there's so many homeless people in this town, you know, like yeah. where does the town use its resources? And that isn't necessarily specifically connected to the meditation, but I think the the meditation practice opens the door for many people if they realize that um, to not just think about good heartedness on an individual basis, but really trying to make more sweeping change. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, in in 1970, when a lot of this was cranking up for you, just a few years later that you founded Insight Meditation Society, I was in the process, I had become a community organizer in Washington, D.C., working on racial justice issues. And it was in that context that I discovered the work of Thomas Merton. Uh, and he was my original source um, of some of these insights, which for me have, have been a great struggle over the years. Um, I've, it shows how much I trust you, Sharon, that I would say this to a master of intentional mindfulness and contemplation, that I'm not very good at intentional mindfulness. I'm a contemplative by catastrophe, right? <laughs> <laughs> slam me into a wall and, or let me slam myself into a wall, and that's when I start meditating and contemplating. But Merton was so helpful to me, not only in terms of dealing with uh, burnout and you know, uh, coming to that sense of balance about myself, in relation to this huge, confusing, booming, buzzing confusion called the world, he that in the in the same movement, he helped me become, as I think you were just saying, more strategic about the actions I took. And it's yeah. you know, it's maybe curious to some people that I would hook the word strategy to the word meditation, mindfulness, contemplation, but there's a clarifying of vision that happens when you are in that mindfulness space that does that can't happen when you're in the frenzy of activity, you know, when you're essentially trying to justify yourself by doing uh, everything you possibly can 23 hours a day. Um, you, you just lose track of what's real, and that's why I love real change as a, as a title. Uh, because we we can't get there from here, and so I think it's at both ends of a activism, or of being a good parent, uh, or of being a good boss, uh, that the discernment and and then the sort of recovery uh, are helped along by the by the work you do. 
there is one um, other uh, critique that you sometimes hear that I'd love to know your thoughts on. Um, that sometimes in this country, maybe too often in this country, very, very valuable things become faddish in a way that begins to deprive them of value in the minds of some people anyway. And one occasionally hears from folks in corporate America that the meditation or mindfulness sessions that they are called to in the course of staff development uh, are resented because they seem to be ways of um, of helping people fulfill workloads that they should that should never have been placed on their backs in the first place. Yeah, they they, they seem to be um, methods management methods that are essentially about calming the revolution that needs to happen within a capitalist system, uh, which is so exploitive of of workers. I have my own thoughts about that but I wonder what yours are. Well, I think, I mean, of course, I've heard the, the critique as well, and, um, and I understand it. But, you know, my experience, my personal experience along the lines of we find ourselves in one another through um, the experience and the acknowledgement of suffering and so on. I've never gone into a corporate setting or, or a government organizational setting or something like that and had an employee say, um, I'd, I'd like to be more soulless so I can be more productive and <laughs> you know match these insane quotas. It's always, I can't sleep at night, or I'm worried about my kid, or I'm worried about my brother. or um, It's very human. And that may not be the intention of the employer who's bringing in these skills you know, at all. So I, I really understand that. And I have very occasionally, but um, have been invited. I had one book that came out uh, called Real Happiness at Work. And after that, I had quite a number of invitations to, you know, different companies and stuff. And you could tell sometimes people really did not want to be there. You know, that was like bad move. And, and I said at one point, they're sitting there with their arms folded around their chest, you know, like totally upset. And I said, do you have to make up for this time? And they said, yes, you know, and so I thought, well, you know, no wonder. But when there's some element of this as an offering, when, you know, then, uh, and it's up to the person to see. I also think uh, my understanding of things like resilience and um, the role of self-respect in seeking change in terms of a movement um, might lead to some surprises for that employer down the road. These aren't necessarily, you know, techniques that just lead to torpor and, and uh, excessive quietude. In fact, some of the people I interviewed for Real Change, who were not like meditators, you know, in, in this sense, but were um, deeply thoughtful, contemplative people, like this one woman uh, involved in the movement of striking fast food workers, striking for a $15 an hour minimum wage and the right to unionize. And uh, having hung out with a number of people in that movement, I kept hearing, you know, like nobody wanted me to do this. My family didn't want me to do this. They all said, don't rock the boat. You have almost nothing. You will have absolutely nothing. 
if you make waves. And they said, but I just thought, it's not right that I be treated this way. And I looked at these younger employees coming into the system, and I thought, it's not right for them either. And I thought it was such a breathtaking example of that understanding of innate dignity of every human being, like every human being has worth. And, you know, my experience was I came to that really through meditation and that understanding, and many people do, but people come to it all kinds of ways. And and the more you have that understanding, the less tolerable, you know, those conditions are. And so I, I do think some employers are getting surprises. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And I just want to mention before Carrie takes us a next step that um, that's such a beautiful full circle from where you started with the experience of you belong, you're not so different from anybody else, and everyone in, has dignity and that's you too. Everyone has inherent worth and that's you too. And when you really absorb that and embrace that, that has implications for your life. That leads to what it is we say yes to and what it is we say no to. So in that sense, it's a revolutionary energy and impulse. And I also, um, the the whole uh, way that it expands, it expands the story. I, I really love the story in the book that you told about the man who started meditating. And when the, the homeless person came up to him, he not only did his normal thing of giving the dollar, but he saw him for the first time. And when something has allowed a greater understanding, a greater sense of connection, um, there's there's possibility there. There's an opening there. There's a possibility. It's like to say, why are there so many homeless people, you know, right here? And uh, And instead of maybe just working on what's right here in front of us, but looking farther to the systemic problem, to what's happening up the river that has to do with human needs and, and societal needs and dignity. And so I, I, thought, I thought that was a really wonderful kind of way of expand from the personal out to an individual connection with this, this person who was homeless to this broader understanding of, of interconnectedness, that there's reasons why this person became homeless. Mm-hmm. And and I need to explore that farther, too. There's a sense of real curiosity there, too. I, I, I love that about, you know, many of the stories, that it wasn't like A's going to go to B, B's going to go to C, C. I mean, it's like often people find their way um, in really organic, personal ways to these different kinds of openings and understandings. Um, you know, that meditation and mindfulness um, it would, you know, it would be nice. It was a nice little neat box, you know, like some of these employers were kind of hoping. <laughs> but it's way more uh, dynamic and curious and tugs on all kinds of inner sleeves, you know, that we might not be expecting. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to say something now about creativity, which may seem a little off topic, but it's what came up in my mind when you were speaking, because when I was uh, thinking about writing the book, Real Change, to begin with, I was talking to Bell Hooks, who's, you know, a, a fantastic uh, writer and uh, feminist thinker. And she was saying to me, I, I, we're friends, and, you know, I had 
told her that I'm used to, just from my background in Asia, kind of the uh, immense parsing and exactitude of words in the Buddhist tradition, you know, where people will say, well, there's a difference between this and that, you know, and she's even worse, you know, which is probably why she's <laughs> such a great writer. It's like, I've never met anyone like that. And so she said to me, um, I don't really like the term social action because I think that for some people it might only imply marching or picketing or something like that. She said, what about art? And and that became a very important consideration for me in writing the book and interviewing, uh, it just happens I know mostly playwrights, but, you know, like interviewing people in, in creative realms. And um, because there's something often in our life, or I've, I've relied on Parker's work a tremendous amount for this, there's something in our life that has us question a barrier, you know, or an inhibition yeah. that brings us to, not that we know the answer, but brings us uh, a lot further in, in our questioning and our curiosity. And often that is some kind of art and um, experience of something that is just breaking down a barrier and and it's given to us and we're we're kind of brought there through being able to receive it. Yeah. And and yeah, all art as an as an artist myself, you know, all art is political uh in in a sense because if it's if it's reaching into human condition and human growth. So yeah, I I I like that how bell hooks kind of dug into that language, you know, that um I think I've told Parker before the longest Scrabble game I ever played in my entire life was with three other songwriters because <laughs> it's like there's a better word I know there's a better word you know, and it can, I can make it fit better. and it can rhyme yeah and twenty minutes later you're going come on buddy let's go but um, but yeah this this of looking at the word social activism and looking at you know what it might imply for some people and how more expansive it is than. Yeah, you know, the people on the front lines of the marches are really important, um, but at the same time, there's so many ways that people engage in creating a better kind of world, personally, daily, kind of moment by moment. So, you know, I really love what you had to say about that. And I was yeah, really so glad Carrie, you I think it in the book. I think between Sharon and me, we can uh, arrange for you and Bell Hooks to play Scrabble online. Uh, and, and raise money for a charity. I think that would be a, a, a great a great thing to do. Ninety five hours later. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this has been such a wonderful conversation, um, but it it's it's not a complete conversation, Sharon, until um, you take us to a non conversational space, a, a mindfulness space, and meditative space. So the folks listening to this podcast follow this project called The Growing Edge. We, as you know, uh, took that name from a great Howard Thurman quote, which in essence says, in the midst of death and destruction, the birth of a child represents the growing edge. In the darkness, in struggle and despair, look well to the growing edge says Howard Thurman. He finds that in nature, he finds that in human nature, and he just persistently calls our attention to it, which has always impressed me because those words come from a man 
whose own grandmother had been a former slave, and he knew her well. He knew suffering at that level, generational suffering. Look well to the growing edge, he says. So with that in mind, with our growing edge audience in mind, we'd be very grateful if you could uh, maybe for the next uh, 10 minutes or so lead us in a, a mindfulness practice that would help take us to wherever that growing edge is in our lives. I'd be so happy to. And uh, I want to say that my favorite, my own favorite Howard Thurman quotation is, look at the world with quiet eyes, which I think is the essence of meditative practice. What we may be looking at may be chaotic or disruptive or whatever, but the way we are looking is with quiet eyes. And, and that's sort of the whole, the whole point. And um, really pondering that sense of the growing edge because um, it reminded me somehow of uh, being 18 years old on my way to India. And in those days, uh, many of us, we flew to Europe, but then we went overland some way or another through all those different countries till we got to India. And uh, I was standing in, in Istanbul on the banks of the Bosphorus River, and theoretically that divides Europe and Asia. So standing on the European side, looking over at Asia, thinking, what will it be like? Not at all sensing that it would form the root of my, the rest of my life, you know. But it was that sense of wonder. Um, and I realized that for me, I, I don't, if I feel, and I'm, if I feel like I'm at an edge like that and I'm not really aware, I kind of fill it with thoughts and often fears, you know, like, what if it's terrible over there? You know, it might be really, maybe this was a mistake. Can I, can I get a return flight? <laughs> you know, like, or um, it's going to be so delightful, you know, and it's going to be great. And, and we don't even sort of bother to go. Uh, but usually it's the anxious one. And so there's a lot of clutter uh, that takes away that sense of wonder. I, I know exactly what it's going to be like, something like that. And, and so a lot of the way I use the meditation is to kind of return just to not knowing and being with what actually is and being able to to have that sense of discovery. So, okay, so why don't we sit together? Um, if you want to sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or not, depending on where you are. If you're driving, please don't close your eyes. And, um <laughs> I should also say that uh, I'm going to suggest a series of instructions. And when I become silent, that's the uh, cue for you to put those things into practice. I say that because uh, sometimes I've been cautioned that if if I don't say that, that people start writing in, my tape broke or, you know, <laughs> I lost sound or something like that. So that's the way it happens. Uh, so you can sit comfortably. Close your eyes or not. If your eyes are open, they can also be like a little bit open. You can find a spot to rest your gaze, let it go. And we'll start just by listening to sound, which could be the sound of my voice or other sounds. And even though we like certain sounds and we don't like others, we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Unless you're responsible 
for responding to the sound. You can let it wash through you. And you can bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. See if you can feel the earth supporting you. See if you can feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space. We think about like picking up a finger and poking it in the air. But space is always touching us. It's already touching us. All we need to do is receive it. Bring your attention to your back. Sometimes we're so forward oriented, we hardly even realize that we're three dimensional. <laughs> See what happens when you feel your back. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like oh, fingers, to the world of direct sensation, picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And on that same level of picking up sensation, see if you can bring your attention to the feeling of the breath, just the normal natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different and find the place where the breath is strongest for you or clearest for you. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath.
without concern for it's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath. Just this one. And if you feel yourself being pulled away from the breath by anxious conjecture or projection into the future, seeming certainty about this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, then that's going to happen, you can gently remind yourself, I don't know, which is not a sign of panic. It's, it's an invitation to space, just some space. And feel what happens inside you as you experience that spaciousness, that's looking at the world with quiet eyes. And for all those perhaps many times you're just gone, lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. We say what's really important is being able to let go and start over. That's why it's a resilience training. We let go and we begin again. Over and over again. Just one breath. Isn't that amazing? No matter how many times we get lost, we can always start over. 
When you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. Thank you so much, Sharon, for the meditation. I I can't think of a better inner space from which to receive the growing edge in our own lives. And thank you for this podcast. It's been a wonderful experience uh, for me, for Carrie, and I'm sure for our listeners. So we're so very grateful. Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Change and midwife of important real changes in so many people's lives. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, uh, it's always wonderful to be with you, Parker, and it's wonderful to be with you, Carrie. And next time we meet, the topic will be Woodstock. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell a few stories. As a musician, I'm going, oh yeah, I want to be there. (laughs) I want want that conversation. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and to bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because in her life and her work, she's creating real change.